My point is not that everything is bad, but that everything is dangerous, which is not exactly the same thing as bad. If everything is dangerous, then we always have something to do. So, my position leads not to apathy, but to a hyper and pessimistic activism as we embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense, and eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're gonna be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 162 of Embrace the Void, where the time truly flies. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are concluding our discussion on critical race theory and diversity training. So, let's make with the thrilling conclusion. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week continues to be Casey Peterson, who has raised concerns about critical race theory-based diversity training. Casey, thanks for coming back to The Void for some more. Well, thanks for having me back, Aaron. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate it as well. I really, I like when I have folks on who are on the other side of things to do these two-parters so that we can really have time to feel like we're both getting a fair chance to lay out our positions. I feel like an hour is just never enough. Yes, <laughs> definitely agree. And I think we've we've certainly proved that in this case. Um, so, uh, so I wanted to come back and start with another kind of attempt to try to do a little bit of a deep dive. And again, it's very hard to litigate data live on air. Um, but I wanted to do a little analysis because in your video, you spent a lot of time on the um, on the Freyer study. This was a study. Uh, sorry, Fryer study. Um, this was a study that was released recently with a kind of uh, surprising headline that uh, it claimed that there was no um, racial bias implicated in the at the level of police shootings, right? And so it seemed like in your video yeah. you use this as kind of proof that claims about racial bias and policing are unfounded. Is that correct? I would say it's it's one of the many pieces of evidence that I presented. And even of that okay, evidence so that I presented, mm -hmm. I was only scratching the surface. And uh, Heather McDonald is a definitely um, good source to reach out for anybody that wants to hear a dissenting view. I'm imagining a lot of your listeners are people who um, are on your side of the aisle. So I would say um, Heather McDonald has a video that I cite in my hour-long video. It's about 40 minutes, mm -hmm. and she really heavily hits on the data. And uh, there, there are mm -hmm. some things that you can look out for with her as far as using um, slight statistical manipulations, such as citing a specific city rather than the entire United States to over glamorize things but she really has a lot of hit hard hitting facts and evidence disproving the narrative of systemic racism not only in policing but also in the judicial system so uh, be good to okay. dig through her data if anybody's looking for a um, alter or dissenting viewpoint from their own okay great so 
it seems, but I want to. It sounds like you're confident. You, you feel fairly confident about the Fryer study. I'm, you're not. You're not going to say that that one has bad methodologies or something. It seems like you're very pleased with Fryer's methodologies. Is that correct? Um, yes, uh, Fryer was. I do not think that he was coming at that from a point of confirmation bias. Fryer says that mm -hmm. he, when he started that study, it was in response to the um, instances in 2000 and um, I believe 2014 is when he had started that study and it was in response to the deaths of Michael Brown and Freddie Gray in 2016 I believe okay it's when the study came out and he said that he was very upset by that obviously being a member of the black community he, he was just saying how can this still be going on and you know 2000 mm -hmm. in 2014 and very upset and started him down this path of looking for answers and i believe that if you look at it one of the things that i criticize constantly when i'm criticizing other studies is the fact that they are using either statistical manipulations or most of the time just not comparing apples to apples they say this is what two like groups are and okay. i'll dig down in a little bit to the methods that fryer used but when he when he actually conducted his study he was asking questions like how old were these suspects how many police officers mm -hmm. were at the scene? Were they mostly white police officers? Was the officer at the scene of a robbery, a violent activity, a traffic stop, or something else? Was it nighttime? Did the officer shoot after being attacked or before a possible attack? And some okay. of the study's driving questions included, was the black suspect more likely to be fired upon in cases where lethal force was justified and when it was unjustified? And did the officer mm -hmm. shoot more quickly at black suspects? So he really did. Um, uh, that's just a sampling of what he did to try to compare two groups that are obviously very different. And you could find many, many ways to say that they're, uh, you're comparing apples to apples when in reality you are not. And I believe that he um, exceeded the standard when, when he did this study. And I was very impressed with it when I looked behind at his methodology used in the study. Okay, so I want to I want to look at some criticisms of the methodology, but first, I, I'm a little concerned that the way you present his his findings in your video is a bit of a cherry pick, because yes, he does find, as you say, that there was a different there was no racial bias implicated at the shooting level. He also finds there was fairly substantial racial bias at every other level of use of police violence. I wouldn't say every other level. You average. are talking about his um, on the self. Um, the reported use of force among African-Americans. Well, yeah. So yes, it showed disparities well, no, no. not only against white individuals on being fired fired at more quickly, but also showed that they were more, he was, uh, police were more likely to be hands-on and use force with black individuals. And that Including is also... Including more likely to draw a gun on them, more likely to use pepper spray or batons on them by as much as 25 percent yes and heather mcdonald dives into that a little bit the nuance of that and that's one of the things i, I want to dive into more in my video but you know it's an hour long already and i was talking as fast as i could in that sure that it just seems important out. information right yes it seems it seems worth pointing out that like the study only found a surprising result at the one level of these what, what you point out in the study are fairly rare shootings which raises issues for um, a lot of statistical analysis of those rare cases, but in these much larger categories of cases where you have a lot more incidents, there is strong statistical evidence of systemic racism, it seems like. Yeah, and Heather McDonald dives into some of the nuance of that. She actually uh, contacted 
um, friar on those specific points of the study because uh, it's very obviously there's very clean cut uh, statistics when it comes to uh, shooting. If there's going to be a shooting, that that is 100% of the time reportable. Whereas the other events of um, what type of violence is used is not always always reportable. And so she discusses a little bit on um, reasons those might exist, and actually has an email exchange with Fryer. And that's something that um, Fryer is very frustrated at. I think this is very important to point out that Fryer is frustrated at the types of data that are used and collected. And I think this is critical moving forward. I think there needs to be from a federal level a mandate for the types of data that need to be collected and every single police interaction and body cams will will do a lot to help collect that information and help ensure that it is accurate what do you think is holding up that revision that that reform who do you think is preventing that reform? <laughs> I, I do not know because it, right either side really? of it let's say let's say that you oh, have on. <laughs> um, people on the okay now you, but you're jumping into conspiracy land now if, if you want to well uh, no I mean it's pretty it's pretty well documented that police unions have resisted oh for a body lot cams. of these kinds sorry of you're reforms. talking about body cams with well not the... just not just body cams but um but also you know broadly speaking right all of the like I mean even reporting it seems like is something that police have resisted and the federal government has resisted because you know it might present much more concrete data showing that you know what we already have some evidence suggests is true that well you just had a big jump problems. in reasoning there i think that there is reasons How? they might uh they might resist the, these collections of data it is very time consuming and it can resource consuming for them to collect this data i think there needs to be a bill proposed but you think it's imperative that they should be collected absolutely right? like, so i, I want to should have the resources i just want to jump so into this a, a little argument. more you we absolutely <laughs> need it but when we put forward these bills we need to ensure sure that we are increasing the fun funding the percentage needed to collect this data if you are going to force these um, these police forces that some of them are already underfunded and you're telling them now they don't have the money that they want for the the basic equipment that they need they were already having a hard time getting it we need to ensure that not only are they getting uh, that they are get they are being forced to do these studies um, whether they want to or not but that in addition to that, mm -hmm. they are getting the funny, the funding for it and have no reason to complain. They are very resistant to body cams and things like that, which I think it benefits them more than it hurts them. And you have a lot of uh, police agree. officers that agree with that. And uh, I think that there's a very strong debate even in, among police departments whether um, the body cams benefit or hurt. I think by now you're coming around to a much larger portion of the police force that thinks these body cams are beneficial to them. So... I think we just need to have it mandated from a federal level that they are going to collect this data whether they want to or not because it's frustrating on either side of the argument. If I'm trying to say that it doesn't exist and you're saying it does exist and both of us come to the same answer of there's not enough data and it's the 21st century and we still don't have enough data on that, there is no excuse for that. It's absolutely ridiculous and it's something that I wish would have been uh, – would have been uh, included in the bill that even did the um, prison reform. I wish we could have included something uh -huh. in the judicial system and policing system, but I think it needs to be in the uh, in the follow-up to that bill because that was obviously a, a first part to addressing the problem of criminal justice reform. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that there's, there's like the reporting on these on this data is really problematic, and there's like there's good stories that have been done about how the NRA has prevented you know collection of more data by the CDC on gun violence, for example. Like, I think there are a lot of, I think people can go and find why it is that it's not a weird oddity that we do not have this data. I think it's a fairly deliberate 
like outcome that is attempting to stymie various kinds of social change. But that you know, setting that question aside, if you if you're so concerned about how problematic and weak and flawed and mixed all this data is, how are you then so confident that it shows that there isn't systemic racism? Because of the uh, systemic racism cannot be proven or disproven without more data, without complete and more data. And the data that is there, there is a vast amount of data there. It's very hard to dig through. And you have certain police forces that, that report very clear and, and strong data. So of the data that is reported, systemic racism does not, does not exist in, in, that, in those data sets. And when we have shouldn't we be suspending judgment then in, in the meantime i mean like on your view of the statistics wouldn't it make the most sense to say i don't know whether or not there is systemic racism still in the world i really genuinely no, don't no because i believe that critical race theory is com a complete conspiracy theory and the burden burden of proof is entirely on critical race theorists if you are going to prove to me that the earth is data, flat, you then you better provide data. some extremely good evidence that the earth is flat. And I put and of the, course, uh, they would say they provide the evidence, right? And I mean, that's the point of argument. But my, I guess my point is, it seems like your response to them should be, this would be the stronger position based on your view. You shouldn't be so confident that there's systemic racism. I shouldn't be so confident that there isn't systemic racism. We should both demand a lot more data and suspend judgment until then. No, that is, so you are saying that that's the middle ground is to sub suspend judgment, but it is an absolutely ridiculous claim to say that America is built on racism, the institutions of America are inherently racist, and that um, they are killing, disproportionately affecting and killing black people. That shapes and affects the direction of the United States and what type of actions we take moving forward forward and that is an enormous claim so to say that oh well we just don't quite know so let's just say we don't know and we'll keep moving forward trying to make things better no the burden of proof is entirely on critical race theory if you're going to tell me make a claim that bold that conspiratorial acting as if everybody is working against uh, african americans in some way rather consciously or unconsciously the burden of proof is on you and that is a high burden of proof and every single time uh -huh. that i dug into this data and these claims it did not withstand any scrutiny and you you dig into but, these but claims you, one you, by you one. You support the Fryer study. The Fryer study specifically finds systemic racism, and then you say, "Oh, but there's complexities. There's issues. <laughs> of course, it's there's not complexities." Quite perfect. There. I'm like, well, what? So, so my my point is, this is an endlessly moving goalpost. You say the burden of proof is on the critical race theorists. They present the studies, including a study that you yourself confirmed is not an apples to oranges study, and you still say that it's not sufficient evidence. So, like, is there any way to ever meet that burden? So does of that proof, now mean that this so a kind we, of we showed we mechanism? showed in prior study that both police are racist against white people? and police are racist against black people. Well, no, what we found is that at every level up to shootings, there is a bias against black people. And then at the level of shootings, there is, you know, we can discuss what's going on there as well, it seems like, right? You if say, you want to say, say we can discuss every level, the and well, there's well, so many levels of police interactions, even even stuff as uh, tr such as traffic stops and things like that, you, you dig into all of so, these different claims of where systemic racism exists, and you can't right. you can't say that because it exists you're saying it exists in every other area of policing that that's absolutely not true. The when we look at traffic but that, that stops, seems to be where it, when it came when it came to his his discussion of force specifically when the Friar study talks about different levels of use of force. Yes, and without more and better data, racism at every level. So with those interactions, right? Okay. Wait, hold on a second. Yes, hold on a second. You've, you've talked like a ton here, right? But I just want to say. 
if you're if you're saying we need more data at those lower levels consistency would demand that you say at the level of police shootings we also do not know and we should not and and like Fryer says his study is not conclusive when it comes to racial bias at the top level he says we need more data too but when you present it you present it as this is substantial evidence that we can fairly reasonably conclude that there is in fact not racial bias at the level of shooting and it seems like consistency would require that you say well we actually need to dig into that more because for example here's one criticism of the Fryer study right folks have pointed out that in order to do the more nuanced thing that you described him doing he has to rely on police reports including police reports about who was violently resisting arrest where there is further evidence that those reports are disproportionately made towards black individuals how do you how do we not you know suspend so judgment this at this, this level comes down then? to the point of where we're saying it, we would we would have expected a huge smoking gun at the end of his study and that is not what we found and even with when we say we need more and better not data necessarily we the better data also includes like body cam footage of these interactions and the very nuanced data where you talk about how these uh how black individuals were interacting with police did they come into these interactions acting extremely nervous angry blatant any any of these things what were their actions that possibly dictated the actions of the police officer just because a police officer used force more often with a black individual you now go back to another core question you say were these black individuals giving a police officer any reason to use more force in these instances? And that is a question. Obviously, if we don't have if we don't have better data, you are not going to be able to answer it. And that's why Fryer has a lot of frustration, not only in his original study, but the study where where uh -huh. he where he follows up on that. An individual police officer making choices on the job. Um, even even um, black police officers are you're seeing the same numbers with black police officers as far as policing and I do not think that black police officers are racist against black black against black individuals again they are not it's being not trained. individual racism that is being targeted here we're not you keep coming back to saying well I don't think that people of color are actively being racist against other people of color a first of all people of color actually can be racist against other people of color that's fairly common and B and like B you know that's not that's not the concern here the concern is are these various systemic forces that are making it the case that you know a person of color a black person is 25 percent more likely to be hit with a baton or pepper spray that's a pretty like that seems to me I, I don't i don't know what level of smoking gun you're aiming for beyond saying you know in one in four cases the black person is likely to experience you know a more significant amount of violence because of the fact that they are black so being 20% more likely of that saying because they're black, again, yeah. you cannot, that statement does not have enough data to back it up. You, you're saying but because that, that happened the because they're black. That you, is I mean, that like, the only you're reason? You're making very confident claims. I just, I, I just don't understand. This, this seems to me a classic example of, you know, when the data contradicts my view, I demand further analysis of the data. But when the data you know goes along with my view i stop i like there was no there was no in your video sort of evidence of the pushbacks against the friar analysis and there's no statement about like you know here's what he comes to on shootings but we should so really still the context behind be the video this. where i'm citing yeah. friar was specifically come out of coming out of talking about george floyd and police shootings and i'm staying focused mm -hmm. entirely on police shootings because i could have gone another hour or more 
on digging into data about different different aspects of policing. And I omitted a ton of data on policing because I was focusing in on the shootings. And shootings are extremely good data because they all have to be reported. When you have police shootings, it's not optional for them to be either reporting it or not reporting it. And even among the data that we're showing, you we can ask the same questions. Without data, we don't know the exact the exact um, details around each and every interaction. If you find out, if you found out that white people were much more belligerent and angry and uh, uncompliant with police officers in these interactions, it would be a smoking gun proving systemic racism in policing. So if you come out and you find right. that this more and better data actually, and they currently, sorry, I want to ensure everybody that yes, they are pushing yeah. through right now and actually going to have better data in a lot of these, especially in the ju judicial system. They are continually pushing for, for better data. But in some areas, they it is very difficult to get certain studies approved and you're getting worse data in certain areas. For example, doing studies based on um, police stops, traffic stops and uh, race and how much more likely uh, people are to speed based on their race. The studies that we have from those are old studies and a lot of people call them outdated, but those studies disprove uh, the narrative of systemic racism policing was saying like you're, you're driving while black. It disproves that narrative entirely. You shouldn't entirely. say disproved though, right? You should say present a data point against it. Disproved suggests that the conversation is over, whereas you're acknowledging that like we need way more data and so we shouldn't be making such confident claims until we have that data. The, again, the burden of proof is entirely on critical race theorists. That is a large claim to say that our, our institutions are inherently racist. And it is on I know, the but critical to race all of to the evidence that. by simply saying we want more data, more data endlessly. No, it seems that like, is not the only thing being uh, I mean, said. You're focused. You're focusing on the on the most nuanced nuanced part of this. Every single claim that comes out, you can take it down, and, and at least ninety percent of the claim can be compete can be disproven, and you are innocent until proven guilty in the United States. And I believe that also applies here. here. You, in your your burden of proof. I don't is on understand how you can claim that. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. But what I'm saying is your central study that you cited in your video doesn't seem to prove what you say it proves. It doesn't even prove anything. It provides one sort of flawed. And like, I also want to add, you keep saying we need to use the actual data. The Friar study uses constructed data to some extent. It, it, it makes hypothetical sort of inferences about its data set prior to drawing its conclusions about shooting. And those, there's been people who've, been, who've released additional analysis that it says that you know those claims are unfalsifiable and like aren't really good statistical analysis as a result so i guess i'm just i'm just saying it, you know it seems like you do a bit of a Martin Bailey where un unchallenged you will say that we have sufficient data to refute these claims. And I understand you think the burden of proof is on the other side, but no, given that I, people I have presented- No, I went in with the prior data, study. Even in his study, I cited his secondary study where he's calling for more and better data. And I think it's important okay. that we have so you, more you and better So you acknowledge data. that there needs to be more and better data. Okay, so you would, you would acknowledge at least that you have not conclusively shown in any way that there is not systemic racism. And I agree, people people have to look at the data for themselves to decide, 
you know, if it sufficiently meets the burden of proof or doesn't. So I, I, I would disagree with that record. as well, because I would say um, <laughs> you take your claims, take whatever claims or preconceived ideas that you have of systemic racism and policing in the judicial system existing and go into a video. Obviously, my video didn't get um, the reason my video didn't dive wholly into that. Uh, over half my video was covering what was happening specifically at my company in my interactions with my sure. company. So of an hour, you have 30 minutes to dive deeper into this. And Heather McDonald mm -hmm. dives deeper into this yet. And there's a uh, you know, other sources that you can jump off of from, from her video, but she goes into police and the judicial system. And there is a ton of data disproving the most, the most outrageous claims on critical race theory. You will at the very least, even if you say, okay, we need more and better data, you will still disprove, fully disprove 90% of the claims and greatly reduce what, what you think, what um, critical race theory is claiming is systemic racism policing. Police are not okay. wantonly running around hunting down black individuals and shooting them for no reason. That is not that is not the case. Okay, I think we can actually agree on the point that the focus on police shootings misses the larger concern. That it's much like, in my opinion, it's very similar to the focus on school shootings or mass shootings as a you know catalyst for discussions around gun control or gun violence, right? It seems to me we have a substantial gun violence problem in our country, um, and it does not primarily have to do with things like assault rifles. And so maybe you could argue that like, you know, I think you could reasonably argue maybe we have a substantial policing problem in our country, but overemphasis on these police, high profile police shootings is not the right way to be assessing it. Though I think, you know, the outcomes in the Breonna Taylor case are, are particularly bad, um, it, you know, when talking about those small examples. Let's shift to another um, well, data point that you bring up. Okay. Or, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. The, you, mm -hmm. you bring in the. Um, so first off, yes, police brutality. Police brutality is a serious problem. I'm not going to say that police are perfect. We we have a serious problem with making sure police are, are better trained to deal with difficult situations. I am discounting or disproving that there is systemic racism in policing based on crime numbers. You see these numbers when you use the crime benchmark as your proper benchmark to assess the disp disparate outcomes in policing with the black community, then those disparities disappear when you compare it to the crime benchmark and not the population benchmark. And you mentioned the Breonna Taylor case where in that case, from the very get-go, any, any legal individual knew that that was not going through to a, a indictment for the police officers, and the police officers are not going to jail. That is an absolutely horribly unfortunate incident with Brianna Taylor, where they were, they had a no-knock warrant. They showed up at the house. They knocked, even though they had a no-knock warrant, they still knocked. When they entered the premise, they said that they had yelled back at them, and they the um, individuals in the household did not hear them. Her boyfriend shot at the police officers first, striking a police officer, and they shot back and unfortunately took Brianna, Brianna Taylor's life. And she, the family was paid out $12 million, which is nowhere near compensation for taking someone's life. And it is a horrible situation, but it is a situation we put those police officers into. And that warrant was a justified warrant. The police knew it was justified, and they were going into a dangerous situation. And it just it just unfolded in a way that was extremely unfortunate. And it needs to be. But to say that that is proving some type of systemic racism, or they even went in there planning on shooting somebody because they were black or something something to that effect, is ridiculous. That com that entire case is a good one for people to dive into deeper. If you are getting if you have a biased media source. And some of the stuff that I said is hitting you for the first time that you did not know the details of this case. I recommend people go and find a biased source on the other side. 
I am somebody who strongly okay. believes that unbiased media is a joke and it does not exist no matter how hard you try and somebody that tries to listen to somebody that claims to be in the middle and unbiased on any topic is ridiculous the best way you could possibly cover controversial topics such as this one is to go find two biased sources and listen to those sources and find the facts on it and where they intersect and find their opinion where their opinions lie on each side that is the best way to get a clear picture going to one single source you will very quickly find out that certain facts get omitted and depending on the source you will have them <laughs> purposely omit many facts trying to misrepresent the situation so Brianna Taylor is an absolutely okay, horrible so... case case study to bring up when you're talking about um, police misuse of force or systemic race or anything like that it's a it's an extremely unfortunate and sad incident that happened but you could put many, many good police officers in the same exact situation and would have gotten the same exact results. And I think systemic folks want to argue that it has to do with, again, not the particular desires of the police officers going to shoot a black person or something like that. But I want to I talk about another example that you bring up in your attempts to show that critical race theory is extremely divisive and harmful. You cite the Ferguson effect in your video, which for folks who are not familiar is the theory that increased distrust and hostility towards the police leads to increases in violent crime rates. Right um, now, the data on this as well has, of course, been heavily contested. There are a lot of confounding variables, not least of which is, is the COVID situation. There's also been sort of people who've argued that this is a, a kind of um, insulting idea. Now, I'm curious, you just said you think that police brutality is a serious problem. You don't think it's racial, but you do think there's a serious problem within policing. Wouldn't that kind of claim contribute to the Ferguson effect? contribute to the Ferguson effect or you do you mean that police being brutal caused the uptick in crime if we were out there in the streets protesting police brutality broadly speaking rather than racist police brutality wouldn't that still produce a Ferguson effect no because the Ferguson effect directly relates to ho like the homicide spike and I don't see why you would get just because you're protesting out there I don't see why you get a uh spike in homicides well the claim is the protests lead to a slowdown amongst policing which leads to a spike in homicide it's the type that's of the protesting theory. that's leading to that when you have protesters, why would the racist protesting be different it, from just neutral police brutality protesting well it's it's the um i i suppose you could have a similar effect possibly but it, it's it's kind of you have in critical race theory or in these protests that we're seeing an element where it's very anti-police, all police are bad, defund the police, and then you have many instances of policing that like have happened since, uh, even since George Floyd, these controversial uh, either shootings such as Breonna Taylor or other things that have happened that have been, you, you would consider them, you know, um, entirely justified. It may not be a good thing that it happened, but you have officers doing their job and still having their lives destroyed. And so now... Officers are telling each other not just, oh, get home safe. It's get home safe and unindicted. It's try to avoid these situations that could possibly put you uh, in, in the or avoid these policing situations that could put you in an uh, area where you would have your life destroyed and your livelihood taken from you. And the reason that the Ferguson effect is uh, not contributed to other factors is because you can see it directly um, correlated. Where were the spikes in crime? That's what you need to ask yourself. You need to dig through the data and say, was it just a general spike in crime across the United States? 
Because in that case, you did not demoralize police officers in random cities around the United States that had already had low crime. They, they did not decide to pull back because of what was happening in one city or major cities in the United States. The spikes in crime specifically happened in large cities where you had police officers dealing with these, not only these rioters, but dealing with a chain of command directly above them, the political chain of command directly above them, did not support them and were more than willing to throw them under the bus and put them in jail for a political win. And that's how they felt. Okay. And of course, any logical person in that instance is going to first and foremost ensure they protect themselves, not only protect their own body, but protect to make sure they can go home to their family each and every night because they didn't get an indicted. And the easiest way to do that is to ensure sure. you don't get yourself in those situations to begin with. And that's what we see okay. right now. I feel like you haven't answered my question, though. Go my ahead. question was, isn't this effectively an argument against any large-scale protest of the police of any form? Because any such protest is going to make them feel like they are being attacked and lead to a Ferguson effect of some sort. No, because you can have a protest of the police and you can still have uh, politicians logically sifting through any anger that's there and make, ensuring that they support their police force and they're allowing them to do their jobs and not tying their hands behind their back and that you are taking logical steps towards fixing the problems and making sure the debate is based uh, a protest is not a riot going out and having a peaceful protest the police talking... officers are all getting exonerated nobody's getting indicted nobody's getting thrown under the bus by the police forces so what do you mean that they're not being backed up like you Breonna have had, like you've you had said, multiple cases you know? of a police officer doing their job and then information coming down that they were not being they they were not they didn't do anything wrong right but the public perception was a angry and in chicago i can't remember the but exact you also instance have, i mean why why are brianna teller's murderers not being thrown to the wolves then like what is your justification for because all of the, the cases law is on their side specifically in this case but you you have okay people... so the law is not being undercut no then, you are right? talking about one instance being followed we are talking about one instance in in this okay. case whereas you can look in chicago and there's a police officer that was he did not do anything um according to the law he uh did not violate the law but he was fired for they said other reasons that not relating to that after the investigation and everyone was clear it's clear that he was fired because of the public outrage of what, what had happened and you have many instances of even if they do retain their jobs their lives have been completely destroyed because of the uh the, pu the public appearance where they had to move for fear of their own life and it okay. you, you can't say that they that these police officers are not having a pre peaceful protest talking about um, police brutality and the need for body cameras and police reform and what we should do and having that conversation does not lead to police not wanting to do their jobs that is how the country is supposed I mean, to work. slowdown effects were a complaint. I mean, the argument that there were slowdown effects in response to policing predates this rise of critical race theory emphasized police protests. They like there were there were criticism. I mean, there were pushbacks like this back during stop and frisk. There were pushbacks of this, um, you know, during any case in which there's been wide scale protest of police. So I guess I'm just not seeing it's why the type this of pushback. We're not I'm not unique. just saying pushback against police officers is bad. But when you have the violent types of pro, uh, uh, police pushback and people the protests running around 95 percent peaceful, like they've been massively overwhelmingly peaceful. Yes. And war is also 95 percent peaceful.
Saying okay, it's 95% still, like, I mean, peaceful is insane. You know that O.J. Simpson... So then no protests ever have been peaceful because all protests have involved some <laughs> amount of violence. No, That's no. That's the argument you, you're making, 95% like. peaceful. That is absolutely ridiculous. O.J. Simpson was 95% pe peaceful the night, night he committed murder. That's a committed terrible murder. comparison, and you know it. Come it, on. It, like, it's like, a ridiculous point, comparison because it emphasizes. You don't run around okay, saying 95%. So what percent does a peaceful protest have to be peaceful for it to count as a peaceful protest? Is it 100%? <laughs> yes, if you're going to count... If you're going to say, we're going to so go out... literally... One person breaks a window. If one person breaks a window while claiming to be under the banner of critical race theory, they have undermined all peaceful protests for critical race. No, theory. It, it's, it's city by city. When you have a city, when you go in a place like Portland and you have a peaceful protest, they're out all day kind of protesting and then they start gathering. And then by 10 p.m. they start rioting and you say, well, it was a mostly peaceful protest. Most of the day they weren't rioting, but, you know, they got they got vicious. They burned down a few buildings. and Sometimes and those are totally different officer. groups of people, too. You realize that, right? Like. Again, you seem very concerned about nuance from the other side and demanding more nuance from the other side, but then you call these largely non-peaceful protests when in fact they are overwhelmingly peaceful and the cases where they aren't, <laughs> there's complexity, right? There's discussion to be had about what's going on in those scenarios. Yes, so and I'm these just, cities, I'm just trying so to understand, hold on. You know, Mostly peaceful protests, yeah. you are correct, because across the nation there's been protests, even here in Albuquerque there was protests and they got slightly you know, uh, there was some unrest but overall it was mostly peaceful. I do not expect there to be a pullback in policing in, in anywhere in Albuquerque, in any other city, there's been many protests across the nation, and where they have the support of their full chain of command, and where these peaceful these protests are truly peaceful, and they're allowed to do their jobs, I do not expect there to be a spike in crime, and that's why you know the Ferguson effect is the actual cause of this, because where you will see the spike in crime is where you see these protests that are mostly peaceful that turn violent, you know, the most often. Saying it's mostly peaceful because it got violent at night in one area, we have to take it down one by one. Yes, across the nation, there's been many peaceful protests, but the protests that are happening that are turning violent are extremely frequent, very violent, and they are damaging not only to the police force, but to the very communities they claim to protect. Because that pullback okay, in think, policing does not disproportionately affect the white community. That pullback in policing will absolutely disproportionately affect the African-American and minority communities where you ha they live in low-income areas that are have higher crime rates than um, more wealthy areas of the United yeah, States. Yeah, and I want to point something out here. You cite that statistic that, like— uh, black communities will experience a greater slowdown. And this is an example in your video, I don't know if you caught this, where you absolutely cite in proportion to the population, which is the thing that you've criticize the other side for doing repeatedly at this point in the but video. But I'm doing it in a correct um, context. Obviously, percentage of population is, I say benchmark, I criticize benchmark. When do you use that benchmark? Percentage of population benchmark can be used. It's, it's a perfectly logical benchmark to use many times, but you don't use okay. it I just wanted to make. I just wanted instances. to get that point out there that there are many cases where it is okay to use a population benchmark yes, because I think absolutely. people listening to your rhetoric would get the impression that that is never an acceptable benchmark and you always have to use a more complicated benchmark, which you do not seem to think is actually necessarily no, the case in certain the, cases. it is so the most misused benchmark um, on, on critical race theory is what, what my claim was. Okay. And that's why I criticized it is because okay. when you just point and say disparity exists, therefore systemic racism, that is a that is a ridiculous jump in reasoning. You have to dig down for that and say, well, why would this disparity exist? What other contributing factors might there be? What, what other, like, is the disparity as big as we say it is? How big is it in reality? And you dig into that question first, and then you say, okay, now we're looking at how big the disparity is in reality after eliminating any manipulations and we say why yeah. does this I just wonder exist? if you ever What's feel comfortable benchmark? that we've, we've dug deep enough um 
But let me let me ask you let me ask you something else that you mentioned in this section of the video that stuck out to me, which was you claim that the deaths and chronic injury rates for police are going up. Uh, it seems like substantially as a result of critical race theory. I didn't see a citation in the video for this. I was wondering what evidence you have that there has been a spike in uh, deaths and injuries for cops as a result of critical race theory specifically and not as a result of a variety of other factors that are in play right now. <laughs> so the um, riots are directly linked to the deaths of many police officers right now. And obviously we don't get the 2020 statistics on everything until after 2020 is completed. But you have uh, the spike in death is going to also, when you look at where these deaths occurred, where did these spikes occur? So if these spikes occurred around the areas where you had the most unrest and the most anger towards cops and the least amount of support for cops, then you can pretty, uh, pretty easily correlate it to, or these injuries and deaths, I guess we can't just talk about deaths because injury is an but integral like part of this. Injuries <laughs> are through the roof compared to deaths of police officers. But again, that I mean, is but like take Port take Portland for example, right? Portland has a long history of conflict with the cops, right? I think we can all agree that like yes. the uh, the anti-authoritarian aspects of Portland long precede this recent influx of critical race theory. But you seem to be very confident in ascribing to critical race theory the consequences of those protests that could, you know, if we, if we went on the ground and asked the people in Portland, what are you protesting or what are you rioting for? I'm not convinced that a lot of them would immediately start citing critical race theory as opposed to, you know, Marxist critiques of capitalism or something like that. But they are using the most recent outrage of the day for their violence that they, they are committing and they're justifying their violence. You talk about um, the spike in violence is going to be related directly to these protests where they're coming out with the Black Lives Matter and the cops are racist and you have them flying signs that all cops, ACAB signs, all cops are bastards. And the, you see these... <laughs> obviously you can't say that the spike in violence towards cops is because of something entirely different. If that's, if that's what they are but using. But all cops are bastards is not a critical race theory argument. It's a, I mean, it's a much larger group of people. It seems like who are raising those so kinds you don't, of concerns. So I do not think you, you could go down there and have uh, probably not even 80% of the people give you a definition of what critical race theory is. So to Probably say that not. they're running around there saying, oh, critical race theory, that's why we're here. No, but if you go down and ask them, you say, are the cops systemically racist? They're, you're going to have those protesters. I, I would almost bet that each and every one of them, you know, well over 90% of them would say, absolutely, cops are racist and terrible. Sure. And that is yeah, a core I, I tenet absolutely, absolutely of critical race theory. That. that is one of the things behind that is driving critical race theory is that our institutions are racist. So, yes, you just like because you they don't say that, it. That, that institutions are racist without being a critical race theorist, I think. You know, critical race theory is the study of those systems of in institutional racism, but you might reject critical races theories approach in a variety of ways while still thinking there's a systemic problem in these cases. It seems like I don't know. Um, let me let me ask you something. Let me ask you something in relation to this, actually, because there was a recent sort of dust up because the DHS reported again this year that violent white supremacists are actually the largest threat to police officers currently out there. Um, and there were attempts, as far as people can tell, by the administration to downplay that information. Does it worry you that there is a extreme emphasis on one side of this conflict and an, you know, sort of attempt to downplay uh, the, the threat of violence to cops by white supremacists? 
No, I think um, white supremacists are a serious threat to the United States. But if you talk about the number of white supremacists, in fact, I would put them, you put a white supremacist and someone pushing strongly this anti-cop critical race theory rhetoric. I believe both of them are equally um, dangerous and destructive to the United States and pose a serious threat to the United States. But you have vastly more people who believe in, believe in critical race theory compared to people who are op openly white supremacists. The amount of white supremacists sure in the United that's States. That's necessarily true. I feel like white critical race theory is a fairly esoteric view at this point, whereas white supremacy is, I mean, whoever, however many people believe it, it has name recognition in a way that critical race theory does not. You can say it has name recognition, but you don't have the thousands of people out on the street, uh, white supremacists marching in the streets in the numbers that you have critical race theory, mar critical race theorists marching in the street. White supremacists are very much outside of, outside of the mainstream. You do not have people um, putting up any any white supremacist rhetoric or banners or anything like that in their place of business or espousing that. That is something that people are absolutely terrified to come out and uh, not terrified. You have white supremacists who are very careful about about coming out and the way they come out. And so I just I guess but I want to also ask have for a massive you, uptick in white supremacists. What is white supremacy like, to you? How are you defining it here? Because that's important. Are we talking about the type of unconscious sure. white supremacy that is perpetuated by perpetuated gonna, by critical race theory? Yeah, let me let me directly cite the DHS's definition of U.S. violent white supremacist. And I would like to hear from you. Some folks like James Lindsay claimed that the DHS's statistics showing an uptick in white supremacy were proof of critical race theory having infected the, DA, the Department of Homeland Security. So I want to read this definition, and I'd like you to tell me if you think this definition is critical race theory or not. Okay? Okay. So it, they define violent white supremacist extremists as individuals who seek wholly or in part through unlawful acts of force or violence to support their belief in the intellectual and moral superiority of the white race over other races. The mere advocacy of political or social positions, political activism, use of strong rhetoric, or generalized philosophical embrace of violent tactics may be constitutionally protected activities. Is that critical race theory? So the part where you cite uh, believing that white people are superior, that's certainly textbook, textbook racism, right? That, that is actual racism, not the racism that's espoused by critical race theory, talking about believing right. one I'm talking non-systemic white another. people racism, yep. And then yeah. um, if we're talking about individuals that are acting wholly based on that or even their entire movements based on that, then yes, that, that's uh, a racist movement. But uh, James Lindsay is absolutely correct when he says critical race theory has infiltrated these institutions. We know now from Chris Rufo's reporting how pervasive this type of training has been throughout the entire government. So, okay, but my concern is, is it proof that the existence of those critical race diversity trainings has in any way impacted the statistical evidence that suggests that violent white supremacist extremists remain the highest threat to um, police officers, not critical race theory? Um, that's very possible that you have uh, them posing a, a similar threat to uh, police officers. And again, we're going to see that in the data, right? We're going to see that in the people who are... Um, Not similar. The DHS says one is higher than the other, like substantially Yes, and that's higher. why people are disagreeing with them. They're saying that that's ridiculous, and that's not what that's not what they're seeing in the spikes. And I guess the injury rates and the death rates aren't being driven right now by white supremacists. That's why that's such an insane, so that's you're saying such a ridiculous claim. You don't have— So you're saying the anti-woke folks are— 
rejecting the data of the DHS and accusing them of a conspiracy to fabricate or not rejecting or, the know, data, countering them, uh, the data, rejecting the data is saying like conspiratorially that they that they fabricated this data. We can just look exactly at the actual numbers coming out to today. No, we can look at the actual numbers coming out since George Floyd's death and talk about um, these injury rates. What is driving the increase in injury and death rates uh, among police officers? That is what we need to be looking at, saying that the, they believe this threat, the threat is greatest from this group of people. They might believe that and they might have uh, data to say that I mean, they're obviously a serious threat and you need to need to look at that and keep an eye on all radical groups that are racist, both critical race theory racists and uh, white supremacist racists. So it doesn't matter which group it is. They are both extremely dangerous. But currently we are seeing the injury and death rates being driven up, not by white supremacists, but by critical race theorists. Both both of these ideologies are absolute poison in the United States, and both of them have no no place inside the Overton window. OK, so you see them as comparable. I see one is significantly more problematic at the moment than the other one. I think we will have to agree to disagree there. Do you worry at all about the fact that as some have argued, there are some individuals who appear to be white supremacists, you know, functioning within high high positions within our government. You um, know, in, in a way that I would say there are not critical race theorists functioning at high positions in our government right now. So um, let's let's go back just one second. You say we'll agree to disagree. I think it's very easy to look at the data on this. Um, somebody can go right now and just set a date of um, when the cops, you know, when the spikes in violence have happened among police officers and what what we're seeing behind these. You're not going to. I, I think I think, I think given it's all easy the, to I prove this is what I'm saying said. moving forward. We need to keep our eye on it. I, I'm not saying that agreeing to disagree. That's it's something it's a silly argument because it's very, very clear cut data on it. What I meant there was I don't think we have time in this particular discussion. I could go back and forth with you on the data, but I think the point you've made earlier that the crime data is itself highly flawed suggests that it's not, in fact, very easy for individuals to go and find out exactly what the truth is here. And that's Fair. part of the problem. And we're saying that we have um, a self-proclaimed white supremacist. Absolutely. You have to root those individuals out of government by any means necessary, by any legal means necessary, because white supremacy is absolute poison, just like uh, you have individuals. Um, when we find it, we call it out. You have to prove that it's factual and then prosecute that individual for their actions that, that are racist. We point out the instances. We don't just point to this general claim of supposed racism or we know that the label racist is attached to absolutely every single politician nowadays that's on the right. And you have to actually. I wouldn't say that. Uh, many, it is. It is wildly that seems, that misused. That seems a way strong claim. Oh, it has been, become uh, okay. so misused I think that it's like the boy who cried wolf. And even when you have an instance of of racism, it's hard to get people to even listen to you because they've heard it so many times. Because everybody is racist. All white people are racist, according to critical race theory. So you coming out and claiming that here's a racist that's in government, it, it um, it's kind of hard to take a lot of these claims serious. But it is very serious to um, have people with this ideology get out of the government. And in addition to that, it's very important that we stamp critical race theory out of the government. Looking at the world through the lens yeah, of race and that. gender is damaging regardless of which side is doing it. I don't care if you're white, black, or what, what you believe. You believing that uh, looking through every interaction through the lens of race and gender and believing these things about race is destructive. And these individuals have no place in our society, especially behind the wheels of power. 
Okay, so yeah, let's talk about the attempts to root out critical race theory because you are supportive of Trump's executive order banning critical race theory in governmental training. Um, and I get the impression you're also sympathetic with him expanding that ban to include defunding schools that use critical race theory curriculums. Is that correct? Yes, um, and I know the, the it is <laughs> much harder, uh, a much harder ask to say that we need it out of schools. The federal government doesn't have that full power. But I hope he is uh, successful and does not misuse the power of the presidency to do that. But we need to root. I mean, these... yeah, <laughs> we need to. So uh, how, how is that different? Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, the what I'm saying is that this is a very destructive ideology and especially being taught at the elementary school level it is very destructive. The. Um, any tools that we can use to get this out of the school that, that are, are legal, anything at our disposal, I think needs to, be, needs to be taken into account. And I'm absolutely thrilled with his most recent executive order where he does not, he does not criticize all diversity trainings. Even explicitly, they state in there that there are some diversity trainings that are extremely beneficial. But he also um, goes in and very clearly defines in Section 2A of the executive order, um, it's, it's a pretty big section, but talks about the types of racial discrimination and uh, racial, racial and sex, sex discrimination and race and sex, sex scapegoating that have been happening. And so he, it is very clearly defined what they are against and it is not against diversity training. And I think so that- I'm, let me, let me, okay. I, I think we all agree that it's not about just diversity training. I think that's clear, but like I'm in classes right now, like I said, in a program that involves critical race theory, very explicitly references critical race theory. It's an education program. It's a, you know, graduate school of education. Do you think that my school, which is a public state school in Jersey should get its federal funding cut because it has that program? If it is a mandatory program, then yes. If it is a voluntary, like academic practice, like we allow all sorts of um, classes to happen inside of academia. And I think it's perfectly uh, legit outside of K through 12 education to have these um, more controversial ideas being taught a a in an academic okay. setting. But for you so to be forced to take this. you're fine with gender studies and racial studies in college and such. In college, I you don't, I don't you think you're ever going like... to root that out. And we need to be teaching these at an academic level. Well, I mean... <laughs> Victor Orban banned gender studies from colleges. Do you think that Trump should just try to ban gender studies from colleges or r critical race theory from colleges? No, it, it's it's a voluntary thing. I think that you okay. you might make a make make some points for um, the, the the thing is even if it's anti-American, it doesn't matter when you're when you're at a college level. If you're opting into that class and it's not being it's not being forced, uh, people aren't being forced whether at the administrative level or students at either level, you can't be forcing individuals to take part in uh, that type of racist, anti-American type of training. But I, I think that you should be able to teach just about everything uh, in a college setting. But the K through 12 okay. education is absolutely not appropriate to be te teaching this uh, racially divisive training. And the nine points made in section 2A of that executive order very clearly define what types of training are unacceptable. So it's not this uh, just vast, vast brush they're painting with. It's very specific about what type of ideas you are giving to students about um, one one race possibly being morally superior to another or being uh, responsible for sins of the past and things of that nature. So it very cl clearly defines it in there. And as defined in that executive order, I completely agree with it. Do you think if there was a bunch of facts, really strong evidence supporting these claims, then it would be okay to teach. I mean, do you think it's wrong full stop to teach controversial anti-American things in schools or only ones that aren't factually justified? 
Um, in, in K through 12 specifically, I mean. K through 12, I, I would say you can teach. You can teach certain controversial subjects, but uh, the, the, it is it does come down to the fact that this is not based in fact and that it's so it's a racist training and the ideas behind it pushing uh, everything through the uh, lens of race and gender is the core problem of it. Um, you can't you okay. can't f go teaching children in school that um, that meritocracy that meritocracy and hard work ethic and things of that nature are are bad and uh, they are tenants of whiteness. Well, you can you can teach them that that meritocracy is often not actually a meritocracy is almost never a meritocracy and that like the reality is meritocracy is a term applied to systems in many cases where individuals get ahead for a variety of reasons other than merit and america is clearly not a meritocracy so like i think it's reasonable to raise criticisms of america as not being a meritocracy but raising criticisms of merit-based judgments and basing people judging people based on their character and uh, as an individual and their personality it, to criticize that is ridiculous to say that there's criticisms like you can criticize and say, Oh, it's not true that they, they aren't living up to their ideals. That is a very justified criticism. And you need to be pointing that out continually when there are instances where people are being that's judged. Weird, that's for the other... central claim of the 1619 project that we're not living up to the American ideals. And yet the 1619 project, the thing that is being taught in schools is the thing that's being attacked. The core claim of the 1619 project is that America was founded on racist. All the institutions are racist. And the true founding of America is, 16, uh, is 1619 and not 1776. Right, and that we're not living up to our 1776 ideals, which the the, the 1619 project makes very clear it thinks are good ideals right it is not a rejection of those 1776 ideals to say we're not living up to them which it seems like a lot of people mischaracterize it by suggesting that it really just doesn't even want us to live up to those 1776 ideals which it very explicitly says the opposite so the, the 1619 project i guess diving deeper into that it's completely so it's a lot of it is complete historical misrepresentation i believe there's um about there's four other question. Pulitzer Prize winners that have for historians Pulitzer Prize winning historians that have criticized the 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 um, I guess the non-historical facts presented in there the it's absolutely not not based on facts and then the 1619 project the original no, intention it's based, was I mean, it's based on a lot of facts and then there are some parts where there are issues and contentions but I it's think based it's on over, this critical race theory idea that we're still completely... racist today the fact is, if you can't right, prove which that. people would agree with a lot of, I mean, well, okay, so this comes back to, again, what you're really saying is you're not against controversial claims. You're not against anti-American claims. You're only against claims that you believe are not justified by facts. And there, there's an open debate. And it seems to me problematic to say there's an open debate about the facts on critical race theory. And therefore, we should still ban this stuff because it's very divisive. We that talked about some of the most nuanced facts of critical race theory. Again, over 90% of the facts on critical race theory can be outright just debunked and disproven. To say that that it's just nuanced That's and we're just going to like the middle ground is that it may with, or may right? not exist. No, the burden of proof is on critical race theorists. It is an absolute conspiracy theory, and it is a you are guilty, you are innocent until proven guilty. And to make such an outrageous claim, you are going to have to provide a substantial amount of evidence to prove that. And the evidence provided okay. thus far does not withstand scrutiny.
Okay, I think I, I want to leave it up to listeners about whether or not the evidence withstands scrutiny. I want to wrap up here and before we get to the enlightening round um, with, a, with a final question that I think you actually liked when I sent it to you, but let's see if you still like it. Um, you accuse your opponents of inciting fear, uh, guilt, victimhood, anger as being part of the major problem with critical race theory. I feel like I get those exact same emotions coming off of the anti-woke movement and including your video. And so I'm curious, do you worry that there's a similarity there and that you might be part of the problem? Yeah, so this is a great question because it's it's true. Um, you are going to, um, minus the guilt, I think you're going to um, experience the same exact emotions for people who possibly agree with my point of view as you would on the uh, other side of the argument. and. It really comes down to maybe a misuse of that word. I need to add into there unjustified fear, guilt, anger, and victimhood. Because, again, if the claims and the data behind critical race theory are true, then that is a morally justified argument. That is not unjustified. In fact, it's a proper reaction to it to be, uh, that's exactly how I'd feel if that was all true. I'd be extremely angry, have a lot of guilt, and you would have, you know, fear and anger when you're talking about dealing with police and things like that. It's, it's perfectly logical responses. So the question does come down to which side is factual and justified in their arguments. Because with such a, okay. any, any super controversial um a subject that has such widespread ramifications, it is going to incite a lot of emotions around that. And so I think just me criticizing those emotions without uh, talking about the unjustified aspect of that is, is probably an oversight on my part. So I would say mm -hmm. critical race theory incites nothing but unjustified fear, guilt, anger, and victimhood. Okay. I think that's very valuable because I think it's it's fair to say, you know, if y'all are right about critical race theory, you have a reason to be angry and to speak out strongly. And I think, like, I'm sympathetic to some of the critiques of critical race theory, especially as it's applied by well-meaning white individuals. And I think a lot of critical race theorists are very critical of it, too, actually. You see a lot of pushback against... Um, you know, white knighting kinds of behavior, I think, in a variety of cases. So I do think it's good to say, you know, ultimately the major major point of contention here is not should is it bad that people are getting emotional? It's it, the major contention is that we have fundamental disagreements about the evidence in favor of these arguments, um, and then you know we have to just keep debating it. It seems like so. Let me ask you one more question and to dial that up, and and then we'll get to the enlightening round. You know, I'm I'm very pro synthesis. I think that there are criticisms to be made with these things. I think there are um, strong arguments in favor of critical race theory as well. And so I think that these these concerns should be synthesized into the view. Um, I'm curious what kind of synthesis you think we should be working towards, a compromise position or not, that you feel like should be the ultimate outcome of this discussion around these issues. I would say that the my compromise has already been made because you come into this with two extreme points of view. You have a point of view on the, you know, on one side where they say racism doesn't exist. You know, uh, America hasn't been racist since the you know freeing of slaves, and there is no problems, and the disparities are all you know false. And then you have this other side saying all institutions are racist, everybody's racist, and you know, so you have these two extremes, and to say that there is middle ground between me and one extreme, I believe I am already 
the middle ground that is just data driven. If the data takes me there and those are the facts of the matter, then those are the facts. Regardless of what I want to believe, that does not matter. You have to dig into these things. And for somebody that is maybe wanting to, like calling into question some of their beliefs, I, I recommend just asking yourself the question of saying like, what is my strongest evidence of systemic racism? And pick, pick, a, pick a topic and pick a claim, mm -hmm. one single thing, and run it down as if you are trying to debunk it and go look for that other data. Because if it is a serious claim of, of racism or critical race theory, there's other people that have talked about this. Go find extremely biased sources, fact check them, dig through it and go through those one by one. And I think if everybody did that with not only this subject, but with all subjects that are so controversial, you would have a much more moderate and logical um, uh, debate and <laughs> tone and tenor inside the United States right now. But the problem is with the mm -hmm. era of social media, we have all kind of gotten into our own echo chambers and we love our own confirmation bias. And now more than ever, it is easy to get very, very niche confirmation bias for exactly what you believe, regardless of what that is, and retreat into an echo chamber and never hear any dissenting opinions or viewpoints. So, okay. So I, ha I have to ask, I'm sorry, I, I had one more question because of what you just said there. You just said that you're, you see yourself as being in the compromise position already. It's being in the middle ground position. Earlier in our discussions, you seem to be critical of folks who take their, who claim that they are in the middle ground in that kind of way. And you were sort of acknowledging that like, you're clearly in one camp and I'm clearly in another camp. So how do you reconcile those two things? So saying that I have confirmation bias, obviously, if you present me with a piece of information that is 100% true, that challenges me, I am going to come at it from the perspective of I don't believe it and it's not true. But what I do from that moment forward is what puts me in the middle. Just saying that I don't believe it and that it's not true, that makes me, that has, that's my confirmation bias. Now, when I take that piece of information on the subject that we're discussing and I go and I hunt it down and find out, is that true? Why is it true? Is it nuanced? Is there more to it? What other things are there discrediting this or possibly that is what puts you in the middle? And it's one of the hardest places to be, especially on a subject this complex, because I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours, you know, researching these different facts and things. And I'm obviously I come from an engineering background, and so I'm very logic and fact my mindset you know and a lot of other people come into this with more mm -hmm. of an emotional and academic type of mindset when they dig through these ideas so how i look at the world is all through facts and data when you come to me with an extreme claim i am somebody that is not i don't i don't shy away from that i get very but you're excited very emotionally engaged it. on this subject Oh, it's you're a very emotional subject. I don't attach to the subject. So I do not I'm, think I'm, this I'm, is unemotional. I mean, all right. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm I, right. I, every I have plenty of emotions on the subject. But the point is, but they're not when influencing you, your beliefs at all. When you dive into the data and dig into the data, data is not emotional. When you dig into that and find out how people conducted these studies and you're, find you're out diving how to dig into through it studies, is, though. What's that? I mean, you're, you're diving into it as a biased individual. So anyway, everybody right. is. I, you're I really, always I going to have to again. Cut. Confirmation bias <laughs> no. is going to always exist. That is that is a fact. It's what, what you I'm do saying. with that bias from the moment you receive new information is what deter determines how determines if you are biased or if you're in the middle or not. You don't become moderate by keep hearing things you want to hear. You become moderate or become more well informed by continually challenging your own beliefs and digging into them and trying to disprove yourself. Okay, I think that's a that's a good final comment. So I'm going to let it let the, let, let it stop there, and I'm going to shift you over. Um, so I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, um, but for folks who are not familiar, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. 
So in the enlightening round, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are those things real or not real? Those are your only options. You do not get to hedge. You don't get to define what the word real means. Real or not real. Do you understand? This sounds okay. like a trap from the get-go. Oh, yes. This is torture, <laughs> but it's torture for everyone. It's not just for you. Don't worry. Everybody goes through this. Uh, so let me start by priming you. Um, is there anything in the world that is real? Yes. Okay. Let's find out what's real. Uh, is the external world real? Yes. Are colors real? Mm, yes. Is phenomenal consciousness real? Yes. <laughs> Your own inner world of experience is what that refers to. Um, <laughs> yeah, is you're is free will real? Land. Yeah, sorry. This is this is primarily for torturing philosophers, but occasionally it's fun to torture non-philosophers. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> is free will real? Yes. Okay. Selves or persons? Yes. Genders? Yes. Races? Yes. Species? Yes. Morality? Yes. Rights? Yes. Knowledge? Real. God or gods? Um, um, not real. Oh, sorry if I'm outing you to your family or something. No, no, I, I, it's, it's very, very nuanced, that, but if I had to, you know, like I've got to go with okay, one or the other. Not real. You were very clear. All right. Fair enough. Society. Yes. Money. Real. Well. Numbers. <laughs> not real with the United States. Um, Real. Fictional characters? Mm, not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground? <laughs> real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? <laughs> real. Science? Real. Natural laws? Real. Beauty? Yeah, real. Love? Real. Causality? Real. And finally, time? Mm. Yes, real. Okay, you survived. <laughs> How do you feel? You are bringing me back to the college classes I disliked the most. People who thought too much about crap. <laughs> Oh, that's cruel. Come on. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's good. I, I really like it. Even the discussion on morality brought me back, definitely. I'm like, oh, boy, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's my favorite loaded question. Yes. Uh, but you survived, and I appreciate it. And you've been a great sport in this discussion. I really appreciate you uh, coming and, and spending all this time answering all of my horrible questions. <laughs> uh, do you want to let folks know where they can find your materials? Um, yes, on YouTube, you can find me. Uh, at Data Driven Conclusions, the channel Data Driven Conclusions, and I only have probably half dozen videos up on there. And then additionally, you can find me on Twitter at Casey A. Peterson. Peterson spelled with E N. Mm -hmm. Different Peterson. <laughs> yes, he's gotten lots of traffic. He even commented to me angrily at one point. 
<laughs> has he really that's funny yes oh all right well thank you so much casey i appreciate it thank you aaron it's been great as a human i was ill-equipped to thank you but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently, so I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and grant God so. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and our newest $20 patron, Patrick. Thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void and our newest top patron big easy blasphemy thank you all so much if you'd like to support the show please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on podcast apps follow us on twitter at etv pod and if you notice a small void growing within you consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void, and the void is you. Mm-hmm.